I want to thank you for subscribing to our podcast and for listening today. Feel free if you would like uh, to rate and review us. Uh, we would also love to connect with you. If you would like to, to speak to a pastor or if you would want more information about our church, you can text CONNECT to 903 586 6520 and we will uh, certainly follow up with you if you would like to uh, support the ministry here at, at fellowship bible church uh, we would greatly appreciate that uh, we have worked hard to improve our our video quality and our online capabilities so that you can watch us during this uh, difficult time away safely from a distance so uh, if you would if you would like to support the ministry here you can text give to the same number 903-586-6520 we would greatly appreciate your support and again thank you for listening in well before changing jobs you often have uh, many questions you want answered First, where's the job going to be? Where is it going to take you, right? Also, what does the job entail? You want to know if you're equipped to do that job. And also, how much time is, is it going to require you to give each and every week? And also, what does it pay, right? You need those questions answered along with, along with others as well. And depending upon how knowledgeable the employer is who interviews you and how honest he or she is will we'll determine how prepared you are if you take that job. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 17. We're continuing our study through Luke. Jesus and his disciples are making their way to Jerusalem and along the way, Jesus takes time to instruct his disciples and other would-be disciples on the cost to following him, what it means to be his disciple. And, and Jesus takes many opportunities to, to explain to them what the cost is for being his disciple, what, what they have to give up, what, what his disciples must lay down. And, and oftentimes he sounds like an, an employer instructing his employees on what the job description is to be his disciple. And the first part of Luke 17 certainly reads in that way. We're going to be looking at, at verses 1 through 6. And while... Jesus' words here are directed primarily at his disciples. They are given in earshot of the religious leaders as well, but his words are also for us, right? Because we are his disciples. So this passage certainly applies to us today. Jesus is continuing to prepare his disciples for his departure, which is coming up. And he provides some very important lessons for them and for us today on discipleship. Let me read this passage to us and then we'll, then we'll look at it in detail verse by verse. Luke 17 verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of God, believers. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come. 
but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Let's pray together. Father, help us to learn these lessons of discipleship. I pray you would give us the desire and the grace needed as your disciples to follow Jesus and live by his example and apply these lessons. We lift up the lost who are listening here and online. We pray you would show them their sinfulness and their need for salvation. We pray that you would equip your people for the work of ministry. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. Three lessons I want you to see here on being a disciple of Jesus. Number one, a disciple of Christ resists becoming a stumbling block to others. Look at verses 1 through 3. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. So here we have Jesus. He's on his way to Jerusalem, taking time to instruct his disciples, would-be disciples, but also, again, speaking in earshot of the religious leaders. And he is instructing them on the challenges of being his disciples, on temptation, and on the dangers of tempting others through what they say and do. First, he tells his disciples that temptations are sure to come. Believers, temptations are sure to come your way. They are. I've talked with people in the past who, after coming to Christ, they, they feel the need to kind of present themselves as having now a complete victory over every struggle in life. I, I've had people tell me the moment I gave my life to Christ, all those struggles that I once had, I no longer have. I'm, I'm free from all of those things. Now, not saying that God doesn't give you the grace you need to resist heinous sins that you were once enslaved to. He absolutely does. Not saying that your want-tos, your desires do not change when you become a Christ follower, they do. But to say that you no longer even struggle, right, with your sin, that, that places you in an elevated position that the rest of Christ's disciples were not in. We're told that Jesus was tempted, was he not? 
He was tempted like we are, but was without sin. Jesus' disciples were tempted and they sometimes fell. Is it wrong to be tempted? No. Well, we all continue to be tempted. As long as Christ delays his coming, yes, we will. The question for us is how we will respond to temptation when it most certainly comes. Believers, Jesus promises us that temptations are sure to come. But he says, woe to those through whom they come. While temptations are sure to come, while we will have to rely heavily upon God's grace and his indwelling Holy Spirit to resist temptation, we better be sure we're not the ones doing the tempting. That's what we see here. Jesus made it clear that while those who are tempted might escape sin, those who have been given over to temptation and those who are the tempters of others will not escape judgment. This is a warning for his disciples, for these would-be disciples, and I believe a rebuke of the religious leaders in Jesus' day. They had rejected Christ. They rejected God's man, his Messiah, the Lord Jesus. They relied upon keeping their man-made rituals and rules for a right standing with God, and they had led many little ones astray. Now, that, that phrase, little ones, can refer to children, but it can also refer to those would-be disciples. Jewish disciples of John who are now listening to Jesus, possibly. Those who had gathered to, to hear from Jesus and were counting the cost of whether or not to follow him, most definitely. And Jesus says here, to those who influence that group and lead them away from the path that leads to light and salvation, that is a heinous offense. The religious leaders had done this. They had led many astray. That's why Jesus refers to them as blind guides, blind leaders of the blind. They had gone astray in their hearts. They had led many others astray as well. And Jesus has a strong warning for them and for those who are tempted to lead like them. Look at verse 2. He says, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. Jesus promises judgment to the one through whom temptations come. That word temptation is the Greek word scandalos. You can tell where... What, what English word we get from that, right? Scandalous. It, it, it refers to the means through which one falls into a trap. It can refer to a stick holding up a baited trap or a tripwire. Here it refers to someone who is the means through which one falls into sin. Now, are we all as individuals responsible for our sin? Of course we are. But here, Jesus indicates that the one who functions as Satan does, as a tempter, as a deceiver, as a snare, that lures one into sin, they will stand judgment for that. And on that day, according to Jesus, 
it will be far worse for that individual than any other day prior. He says, death by drowning in the sea with a heavy stone hung around your neck will be better than that day. Millstone was a huge stone used for grinding grain into flour. One hanging around your neck would no doubt pull you into the depths of the sea. It's a terrifying scenario, isn't it? Jesus used that, that, that awful scenario to make the point, the day of the Lord will be worse for a non-believer through whom temptations come. Now there is a debate in the first phrase in, in verse 3 on whether or not it's referring back to what was said in verses 1 and 2 or what it said uh, if it's referring to what is to come where Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. It's important to remind you that the little numbers in your Bible, the chapter numbers and the verse numbers, they came later, okay? The chapter numbers came in the 1200s and later in Wycliffe's Bible in the 1300s. They weren't originally in the, the scripture and the verse numbers came later in the, the 15th and 16th century. So when you call into question where those little numbers are placed, you're not calling into question the inerrancy of scripture, okay? And I believe that that phrase in the first part of verse 3, it's referring back to what was just said when Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. But it also applies to what's coming ahead as well. Jesus is making the point, because temptations are sure to come, you must be on guard that you do not fall prey to them and potentially move into a position where you're acting more like the tempter rather than the tempted. Jesus says, you need to pay attention to yourselves lest you fall. Scripture is clear. Again, judgment is coming for wicked influencers and the day of judgment for them will be worse than the worst death imaginable. Folks, we need to pay attention to ourselves. Jesus' words here should serve as a warning to us. Jesus is calling for us to be on guard here. This is something we could fall prey to. Think about me. How easily would it be for me up here week in and week out to lead somebody astray? That's why there are strict warnings given. To, to teachers, those who stand in positions like what I'm in. But it, but it also goes for you parents, you grandparents, you leaders, you, you influencers. You could easily lead astray by your words and by your deeds. Paul knew this, which is why he warned Timothy of this. 1 Timothy 4.16, he says, Keep a close watch on yourself. Pay attention to yourself, Timothy and on the teaching, persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Folks, if you are concerned about leading those people you're influencing astray by your words, which you should be, you should be on guard against that, here's Paul's advice to you. Watch your life and watch your doctrine. Watch your life and watch your teaching. We have lots of opportunities for you to become more of a student of God's word, 
so that you think rightly, so that you believe rightly, so that you live rightly. We have small groups. We have equipping classes. We have men's and women's Bible studies here at the church that are designed for you to come and study alongside other believers so that you understand what is right and true and so that you you pour into one another so that you stand strong, so that you sharpen one another so that you know what is right and true, resist temptation, grow in godliness, rather than give in to temptation, stray from truth, and lead others astray. You're going to find in your study guide this week that we, we challenge you to get connected here at Fellowship, if you're not, so that you can be more effective at paying attention to yourself, keeping careful watch over your life and over your teaching. Notice the second lesson Jesus gives on discipleship. He says, a disciple of Christ rebukes the wayward and forgives and restores the repentant. In verse 1 through the first part of verse 3 of Luke 17, Jesus tells his disciples temptations are sure to come. The worst judgment is reserved for those through whom temptation comes. Then he calls for them to keep careful watch over themselves. And here in verse 3, he also tells them to keep careful watch over one another. Keep watch for one another. When one is struggling or slipping, you're to go to them. You're to rebuke them in love in hopes of restoring them. Jesus tells them that true disciples of his, they act out of love for one another, rebuking those who were wayward in hopes of restoring them. Look at verse 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Is there any other way to understand that? If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. It's pretty simple. Pretty clear, right? Does Jesus say here, if your brother sins, ignore him to avoid confrontation? Is that what it says? Say no. Nope. Does it say, if your brother sins, overlook it because you're a sinner as well? Does it say that? He does talk about dealing with the log in your own eye. So you need to do log work first before you pull out the splint in their eye. But no, he doesn't say that. Jesus says... If your brother sins, rebuke him. Correct him in love. Why? So he will repent and be forgiven. An unpopular teaching in our church today is the topic of church discipline. Discipline's a bad word in, in our society today, isn't it? It's a godly word. It's in the Bible. But of course, society makes it bad, turns it, twists it, makes it a bad word. Listen, while I'll agree that in certain circles and certain churches, church discipline has been overused in every little circumstance and has been abused because it's been carried out for the wrong reasons, in the wrong spirit, at the wrong time, with the wrong motivation, this act, if done right, is the most loving thing that you can do for somebody else. It is. And, and believers, it's wise to receive correction given in love. Read Proverbs. 
It's all over Proverbs. The fool is the one who doesn't listen. The fool is the one who gets angry. The wise person receives it. They receive a rebuke. God's word says, discipline done right leads people to repentance. It it leads individuals back into a right relationship with God. It is restorative. It, it, It can lead them away from being a tempter of the godly to being a committed Christ follower who is effectively resisting temptation, growing in godliness, and shining the light of God's gospel to others. You ought to receive it when it's given. And you ought to give it in love when it's called for. Not disciplining someone, another brother or sister in Christ who is wayward, sweeping their sin under the rug is an act of hatred. We're told that in scripture. I've heard it reasoned in this way before. You got a a, a guy who is struggling, he's straight. I've heard this said, man, no big deal. We all mess up. Don't worry about it. Do you know that counsel is counter to God? Not a big deal. Sin's a huge deal to God. He doesn't want you to forget about it. What does he say? He says, confess your sin. When we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. Overlooking sin, ignoring sin, explaining it away like it's nothing is not an act of love, but the opposite. Parents, remember what is said in Proverbs on discipline and disciplining your children? Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Correction done in the right way at the right time with the right motives. Correction done in love is one of the most loving things that you can do. It can lead to one being corrected. It can lead to one coming under conviction and being repentant and being forgiven and being restored. Why wouldn't you want to see that happen to somebody who's struggling, right? It can lead someone drifting from the hard but right way back on the right path. It can also lead non-believers, those who have believed in vain that may be in our midst, can lead them to see their sinfulness and their desperate need of rescue. Jesus tells his disciples, after you rebuke in love and they come under under conviction and they, they repent of their sins, you are to restore them. He says, if they sin against you, now let me get your ears here, okay? If they sin against you and they seek forgiveness from you, forgive them. How many times? How many times we got to do that? Peter wanted to know. How many times? Verse 4, Jesus says, And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must, must, underline must, you must forgive him. Now, some argue that Jesus makes a mistake here because he gives a number seven. Matthew 18, when Peter asks, he gives more than that. 
Peter, in, in verse 21 of Matthew 18, he, he came to Jesus and he said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. In other translations, it says 70 times seven. It's a difficult translation there. That, that, that number is difficult to translate. But Jesus is saying the same thing. He's not saying seven and you're good, 77 and you're good, 490 times and then you're good. It's not what Jesus is saying, right? The main point he is making here is there are no limits to forgiveness when forgiveness is earnestly sought. Daryl Bach, in his commentary on Luke, says this, As often as repentance occurs, forgiveness should follow repentance. That's what he's saying very clearly. It's what he's calling for. He returns to this topic again and again. We are to be people, we as believers, are to be people who forgive. Forgiven people forgive. That's a point Jesus makes again and again. If you have been forgiven by God, you should give forgiveness freely when it is earnestly sought. If you have been a recipient of God's amazing grace and love, you should love God, love others, and be gracious. How can we not? Think about what we've been forgiven of. How can we not? Freely give forgiveness when forgiveness is earnestly sought. When you come to terms with the fact that you stand before God, not condemned, though you deserve to be, and restored, though you do not deserve to be, when you realize that God has not given you hell, but instead he's given you everything in his son Jesus Christ, you cannot help but forgive others. That's why it's important that we go back to the gospel and 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 back to the gospel. You don't just need the gospel to be saved. You need the gospel to live the life that God has called for you to live in Jesus. Going back to the gospel enables us to forgive when we consider how we've been treated, how God has given us grace, how he has restored us. Now, I say that like it's easy, right? But it's anything but. Now, some people think they're a person who, who is a, a forgiving person because they let stuff roll off of them. Now, that just means you're easygoing, okay? That doesn't necessarily mean you're a forgiving person just because you don't get messed up by a whole lot. I'm kind of that way, right? Think about when someone cuts you deeply or someone you love. They hurt them in a deep way. Forgiving in that sort of circumstance seems near impossible, right? That's what the disciples believed. That's why they say what they say. Look at what they say in verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. What's the significance of that request? Think about what faith is. Faith is total dependence upon God, complete trust in his person and work and a willingness to do his will. They believed they needed an increase in faith to obey Jesus' instruction here to forgive. 
His disciples did not believe they had the faith they needed to respond. They, they believed they were in need of an increase in faith, but Jesus assures them they don't. Point number three, third lesson for discipleship from Jesus is this, a disciple of Christ exercises the faith God gives. In this passage, Jesus calls for his disciples to do some difficult things. Let's recap briefly. Calls for them to resist temptation and avoid tempting others. To confront and rebuke wayward believers and restore them when they repent. For those who sin against them personally, he calls for them to forgive as often as they earnestly repent. And in response they say, Lord, increase our faith to meet the, the demands of what it takes to be your disciple. Help us to have an even greater amount of trust to be your disciples and do your will. How does Jesus respond? Look at it, verse 6. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, very, very tiny pebble, looks like a speck of dirt, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Jesus lets him know here, You don't need an increase of faith. You simply need faith. You need faith. The question is not the size of your faith, but the presence of faith to do this. Think about again what faith is. Faith is dependence upon God. It is trust in His person and work alone and a willingness to do His will. That's what faith is. Is faith present in your life? Are you a person of faith? Do you trust God to do great and mighty things in and through you? Jesus lets us know what the faith, the size of a grain of mustard seed would do. It can uproot mulberry trees and plant them in the sea. Now, obviously, Jesus is using hyperbole here, right? God can, of course, do whatever he so chooses, but there's little kingdom benefit to uproot trees and plant them in the sea, right? Jesus is arguing from greater to lesser here. He does this often during his, his ministry. His point is this. If mustard seed-sized faith can uproot trees and plant them in the sea, then our God-given faith that we receive as believers, if we exercise that as Christ followers, that is more than enough to accomplish this kingdom work that, that Christ is calling for here, for us to resist temptation and rescue and restore the wayward and forgive those who earnestly seek forgiveness from us. God wants to use us in this way as his disciples. He wants us to trust in him. He wants to use us to lead people back to themselves. And he has given us the faith to do it. He has. Do you believe that? Do you have God-given faith needed to resist temptation, to rebuke the wayward, to forgive and to restore the repentant? If the answer is no, the answer for you may be that you've not been awakened to faith. That you've not been given that faith. That, that, that you are not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. And if this is you, 
My prayer for you this morning is that God would do this work in your heart and life right now. That he would reveal to you your great sinfulness and great need of rescue. And that he would change you from the inside out and give you that faith. My prayer is that he would give you eyes to see ears to hear, a heart to understand his gospel, that you would see that while God created everything right and good in the very good beginning, and he created man in his image to be his image bearer, man went astray in his heart. Man sinned against God, and you have rebelled. You followed in that rebellion. You were conceived in sin. You went apart from God on your own, yet we're told while we were this way, while we were sinners, God sent his son. He demonstrated his love for us. He sent his son to be for us what we could never be, perfect inside and out. He took on flesh. He lived for us. He died for us. He was raised for us so that we, through him, through faith alone in him alone, could be forgiven of sin have victory over sin and death, be given life eternal in him. Are you trusting in that work? Have you believed on Jesus? If you're here this morning or you're listening online, you're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, I invite you today to turn from your sin, forsake your sin, place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation and be saved. Let's pray together.